Welcome to Space Floor NBA Podcast. My name is Connor Gielen. And I'm Connor Flattery. And this is our 58th official episode. Today, we're back with The Last Dance, talking about the MJ doc. I know you got the shirt this time. Mine's in the wash. I do. Chicago Bulls. Yeah, and we're reviewing episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Episode three talked a lot about uh, the Bad Boy Pistons and Dennis Rodman and his conversion from the Bad Boy Pistons to the the Bulls. And then episode four talked about Phil Jackson uh, and how he he came to power in the Bulls. Um, His story was really interesting, and we'll get to that. But first, let's talk about episode three, Um, the Bad Boy Pistons, first and foremost. Uh, I didn't really know that much about them besides like all the like the oh yeah physical defense late 80s early 90s uh just generalized but what was the biggest takeaway that you had from them um for for one thing like i, I think the thing that stood out to me the most was that for a team that won two championships they talked very little about how good they were and more so just about how hated they were um which isn't necessarily a mistake because they're trying to portray a very specific image of the bad boy Pistons, which was that they were this obstacle that Michael Jordan had to overcome and that this, that they were this thing that still bothers him to this day, um, that he still has animosity towards them. But I, I think that they should have spent more time saying really like that, it, that those teams in themselves were some of the greatest teams in NBA history. And so I, I saw a video that Sporting Logically did also talking about these episodes three and four. And, and he raised the question, which I thought was a very good one, was have those Detroit Pistons teams, the Bad Boy Pistons, become underrated in NBA history? Because anytime anybody ever talks about them, it's in a situation like this. Um, well, I would say not anymore because mm. now every Jordan fan on the earth is like, Man, he he came. He overcame the Pistons. The reason that they lost to the Pistons is because uh, the Pistons are just like this dynasty, this best team ever. But I think no matter what, I think even if the narrative does become they get more recognized because Jordan beat them, that's still underrating them because that's viewing them through the lens of Michael Jordan and through them viewing them through the lens of just an obstacle rather than appreciating them for their own body of work and who they actually are. So I think they have become a little bit underrated in NBA history. I don't think the, the brand or the marketing has, because we refer to them as the bad boy Pistons. Mm. Um, So obviously people know there's grit. People know they were good. Although I do think there's a little bit less of like the, the glam because obviously they were a bit more gritty, but even then, like, if you look at teams that have won two, three NBA championships, like that's usually in like your graphic of like best players of all time. But that, that team, like even Isaiah Thomas is one of the most underrated point guards of all time. That's, that's what I was going to say is, I mean, when we talk about that list of the best point guards ever, or when, even when you think about like the best players of the eighties and nineties, I don't think Isaiah Thomas immediately jumps off. But he should page today. Exactly. But he should like, why is it that we talk about John Stockton as one of the best point guards ever, uh, but we don't talk about Isaiah Thomas? And obviously, John Stockton is like all-time assist leader, all-time steals leader, but he doesn't have the two rings that Isaiah does. You know, there's give and take. There's reasons to compare both. But I, I think that, you're, that what you said there about Isaiah Thomas having become one of the more underrated point guards in NBA history, I think it's true. Because I think that, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that 
even when people are talking now about Jordan having to overcome the Pistons, I think the idea is that the Pistons were only so good because they played in an era where you can get away with cheap shots and dirty fouls. The Pistons were a great team, regardless of like what I got, what they what they got away with. They were an extreme of an era for sure, and they definitely benefited from playing at a time where you could beat the hell out of Michael Jordan in the paint and not get texts, right? Or you wouldn't necessarily foul out. That wouldn't fly in 2020. But you can't fault them for playing to the strengths of an era, for one thing. And I also think that they're not the only team that did that. Like I said, they're an extreme. And But I think that part of the reason that they're so known for that is that they, they won two championships. And so the narrative while they were winning two championships was that they were sort of the villains of the league. And so to fight against that, you have to say, oh, well, all the, all the Pistons do is just take cheap shots. They wouldn't have two championships. They weren't knocking people out. Like, no, they were the best team in the NBA for two years. And you can, if you go back and watch the documentary, if you don't remember him saying this, Jordan said after the Pistons, beat the, the, I think they were swept by the Pistons. He said, like, the Pistons were the better team this series. They're the better team tonight. They're the better team this series. We're going to come back next year and hopefully we'll beat them. But as of right now, the Pistons were the better team. That's just how it was. That's not, that's not an excuse. It's just the truth. The Pistons were a better team. It wasn't just about the fouls. Yeah, I agree. Just for me, it's just like, if you put a collection together of teams that have won two championships in three years Mm. or three championships in four years or whatever, that's a pretty short list. And, And every team on that list, we, we hail as like the best of that generation. So I do think just straight up on accolades alone, like, like they're there and we we present day are at fault for for viewing them just as their characteristics instead of it's like oh yeah that pistons team that won two rings like like oh those dudes were good it's just like oh no those dudes those dudes bullied jordan like i like for example i think we talk a lot more about hakeem olajuwon winning two championships when jordan retired than we do talking about Isaiah Thomas winning two championships right before Jordan hit his prime and while Magic and Bird were still in the league. Like, that was a deep NBA in one of its prime eras, and the Pistons managed to take two championships, and we still don't really talk about it all that much. Hakeem Olajuwon is pretty widely regarded as a top 10 player of all time, one of the best centers ever. I don't think Isaiah Thomas, for example, fits in that same tier as Hakeem. Yeah, and... Obviously, I feel like like Hakeem has like other accolades. Yeah, Defensive Player of the Year, MVP, whatever. But yeah, it's I don't I don't think those two championships that Hakeem won are so much more valuable than Isaiah Thomas's yeah. that they're in like the tenth best player of all time versus the fortieth or something like that. Yeah, that's a very good comparison. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, because like, and just going back to answer the question, I think they're underrated in their achievement because they're not underrated in like publicity. Like people know who Bill Lambeer is, mm. right? So. But people just, only people only know Bill Ambeer as the guy that tried to pick fights with yeah, everybody. Yeah, so, yeah, so I do think they're not underknown, but they are underrated in terms of greatness. So mm. yeah, that, that that's my answer. Um, I like how the documentary did focus on like they did get across the message of like, oh, these guys were wrecking Jordan. Um, that that was good, especially because it's it's a Jordan doc. Of course, they're not gonna focus as much on the pistons, although I think they should have. Um but yeah, like not focusing as much on their greatness, focusing more on how they affect, how they affected Jordan. That's good. Um, how about them walking off of the court? Because they, for those who don't remember, uh, finally, 
Jordan and the Bulls got over the hump. They finally beat the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals to get to the finals after being beaten two of the previous three years, I think. And the Pistons just walked off the court with like two seconds left. So basically, bottom line, no shaking hands, no sportsmanship, I guess. And Isaiah Thomas came up on record and in the documentary and said, that's just, that's just how it was. You can look back. Uh, when we beat the Celtics, they walked off the court. Um, and for me, I agree with him because I wouldn't have agreed with him until they showed the actual clip of the Pistons beating the Celtics like in the early 80s and the Celtics walking off the court. And so I was like, okay, that's just, that's just how, it, that's how it was, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a, that's a good point. Um, I, I had a moment even just like now thinking about this where I was like, but Jordan brought up the point where he shook, the South, he shook every player on the Pistons' hands when the Pistons beat, this, beat the Bulls. So why was it the year later it changed? But it wasn't the same because they spent so much time talking about how the Bulls and the Pistons, they both had this one team in the Eastern Conference that they were essentially constructed to take down, right? And so when they eventually beat that team, when they beat that rivalry, when they won and like took over the throne as the new top team in the Eastern Conference, that was when there wasn't hands shook. Yeah, exactly. So, Just because the Celtics were the team to beat back in the day. So like, like I'm sure if the, if the Celtics had, been, had beaten the, the Pistons, which they had before, I'm, I'm assuming here, but I, I think that the Pistons would still shake their hands because they're, they're the underdogs. They're not the top yeah. dog. Exactly. So with the top dog, you have the credibility to just walk off the court. They you earn that right. When you're, when you're handing down the power, they don't, they don't give them that satisfaction to shake their hands, which I think is yeah. So It's pretty does, badass. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I, and so, so does it – like, do, is, was it really a product of the era? I'm not really sure. I'd have to go back and look more closely. Now, there are probably only two examples of that exact circumstance, right? The Celtics beating – or sorry, the Pistons beating the Celtics is probably the closest other thing to that. Um, really of the era so that might be the only other example you compare it to but i'd be interested to go back and see do my research and like was that really something that was going on yeah uh another thing that became apparent from that segment was i didn't appreciate how alive and well the jordan and isaiah thomas rival rivalry is i thought it was kind of just like things in the past jordan didn't really want isaiah on the on the dream team he kept him off it but like other than that, I just thought it was like, whatever, they don't really care about each other anymore. But that's definitely not true. Like, Jordan was handed the tablet to like, oh, this is what Isaiah Thomas said about uh, the, hand, the, the walking off the court. And Jordan just like, I, you could show me anything right now, and that would not change my opinion that he's, that he's a jackass. Well, he, he kind of called it out, too. He's like, he's like, whatever he says, he will have had the last 30 years to think about it. It doesn't change. So I don't care what he thinks about now. He was in a-hole back then, right? And, and so whatever he says now doesn't change that. He, he stood by his decision then. And so if he doesn't say by it now, whatever. But, but that's who he was then, right? So don't let whatever he says. Whatever he says is going to change the way I think of him of what, you know, when he's like 30 years old um, you know, in that series. And so I thought that was really interesting. So he's like, he didn't dismiss the idea that Isaiah had a change of heart. He just said, like, I don't care if he had a change of heart because the Isaiah that... I remember is still the one that treated me that way. So I thought that was pretty powerful because I actually do think that that's true. I think that Isaiah Thomas 
at that time stood by the decision and was he was thinking in his head like yeah this is badass and now and now later he realizes like okay that doesn't fly in today's nba so i gotta apologize because in hindsight that doesn't look so good but i think that that probably was the standard at the moment yeah i agree um and lastly talking about not just the legacy of the pistons but how does this picture that we've that we've seen where jordan tries and fails, tries and fails pretty, pretty badly. Um, and then finally beats them. How does that tie into his narrative? How does that tie into the goat narrative? Uh, because I was seeing a lot on, on Twitter and stuff. That's like, man, Jordan, Jordan's the goat because he overcame the bad boy Pistons. LeBron would never have been able to do that. And for me, I just, I walked away kind of the opposite. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I, I think that, that is a flawed argument because, uh, I mean, for one thing, comparing er- errors is always problematic. That's the bottom line. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's always going to be a little bit iffy comparing Jordan and LeBron. But I actually think that in this exact situation, LeBron would be better against the bad boy Pistons than Michael Jordan would. And before you're like, okay, Connor only thinks, you know, Connor's a LeBron stan. He thinks that LeBron's the GOAT. No, I actually think that Michael Jordan has a better career than LeBron James. He's the greatest player of all time. But – I think that, and, and I mentioned this to Connor earlier, I think that Jordan learned from that Bad Boy Pistons series to play more like the LeBron James that we know and love. He had a coming of age that turned him into the player that became the greatest of all time, but that was because he learned to pass, right? He learned to give it to John Paxson. Um, and he learned that he had to put on body weight and put on muscle. So, I think that he actually became, in terms of his physicality, he relied less on just hops and, and actually put on a little bit of extra size, put on 15 pounds. LeBron is bigger than Michael Jordan was. He would probably be better at sustaining that kind of hits. And I would argue that LeBron James, as many points as he puts up, is probably a pass-first player. Arguably, his greatest attribute is his playmaking. Maybe There's, even over there's his- a difference between being pass-first and being better at passing. LeBron is... Yeah better at passing than he is scoring and he's a top 10 scorer of all time so i mean that's that shows you that i but, mean lebron's a special case but yeah I, I just mean that lebron james from day one has known how to get his own and step up to the plate when he needs to but also get every one of his teammates involved and so by that i mean that lebron that michael jordan in in coming back and beating that bad boys pistons team learned a Le, learned a lesson that i think that lebron james already had even as like a second year player in the NBA. So, so Jordan didn't come to the league till he was 21. That pro- series was probably when he was 24, let's say. I think LeBron James was well aware of that lesson by the time he was 24 years old. Now he had flaws of his own and he had his own things that, he's turned, that he tried to turn around and learn throughout his career. But that was one of them that I think actually LeBron, LeBron James in the 1980s or 90s would have been better off against the bad boy Pistons than Michael Jordan would have. Yeah, they like the argument would be like, oh yeah, they would just sag off of LeBron and then and then foul him when he gets to the rim and he's not as and he and he's too soft and he he can't hit a jumper. Um, I would say, well, first of all, uh, during the like the eighty eight eighty nine season, like in the playoffs, Jordan shot two threes a game and shot like twenty eight percent on them. So it's like mm. like he could shoot, but he could shoot the midi. He couldn't really shoot from three. But I I, I think either way, 
LeBron's strength, as as the documentary pointed out, Jordan needed to bulk up. So I think I think the strength is the biggest point. Two extra inches, just height wise. Yeah, and then I think the biggest point would be like the Jordan, like the documentary, like literally spelled out. It's like there was a there was a thing in Jordan's head where all of a sudden it clicked that he could pass the ball now, and it's not even like oh he became a better passer. It just oh he passed, mm-hmm. whereas LeBron's play style is just better suited because top three greatest passer of all time probably and he can just he could just he would tear apart those passing lanes he would destroy them if if the bull if the pistons come and double that's that's two points that's three points for someone besides lebron james just hidden open just to clarify the argument that both of us i think are making is that the obstacle that that michael jordan had to overcome in the bad boy pistons is not in itself the reason that he is the greatest player of all time it's more that him overcoming those Pistons teams, or I guess him losing to those Pistons teams twice, turned him into the monster that became Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And um, I don't, I don't even know if he became like a better player. It just he at least smarter, at least hit, stronger. I, I would say his game transformed better into winning, and that that unlocked Scottie Pippen's game too. Like the Jordan Doc said, that's a very good point. I mean, it, it taught him the value of his teammates. I think more than he always had the drive to win, but he he found out, or at least he was much more aware that if he was ever going to win, and if he was ever going to prove that he could make his teammates better, he had to start by I, I don't know, like instilling in them the same drive to win that he had. The one yeah. the one thing I want to go back to is. I want to concede that if LeBron James was getting fouled every time he stepped, side, stepped foot inside the paint, he was not as good of a free throw shooter as MJ. Okay, but here's my point with that. What, what is MJ, like an 80% career free throw shooter? I'm not actually sure. I'll look okay. it up okay. right now. So, okay, so here's my point with that. Like Skip Bayless is going off. It's like, and he's a poor free throw shooter. So he would, he would uh, just fall apart. Do you know how, like, do you know how many times Jordan and LeBron shoot free throws in a game? If, if it's a 10% difference like that, if it's 80 versus, let's say LeBron is 70 at the line. Yeah, LeBron is 69.7. and Jordan, Jordan his career high in the playoffs for free throws is like 13 per game, which is ridiculous. Um, but his normal average per game in the playoffs for, for free throws during that era was like, was like 10. And let's say LeBron's is like, I don't know, like, like eight or something. But – that free throw differential is only one point. It's only one free throw difference. Shoot, shooting seven out of 10 versus shooting eight out of 10. Mm. That's one point in a game that'll finish 95 to 98 to 90. So although like that's, that's the attribute of basketball, that one point will win you very few games by itself, right? Like, like very few of NBA games are, def- are decided by one point, even in the playoffs. So that's an added on thing, but that, I don't think that's this like huge narrative that would have happened. Cause like, even if LeBron shoots 10 free throws a game, which would probably be like a career high or something in the playoffs, like, okay, he, his team scores 93 instead of 94. Yeah. doesn't matter. So another question I want to throw on for you before we move on is, do you think that LeBron had a team he had to overcome the same way that Jordan did? And if so, which one? Boston Celtics. That's mind. the one that came to mind too. 20, like 2008, they won the championship. And then they, they made it back to the Eastern Conference Finals a couple years after that. 
Yeah, uh, and they or they were in the finals did. with the with the Lakers twice. In, sure, I met I met yeah to the finals. Yeah, yeah. they won in '09 and then they lost in 2010, and then LeBron got to the finals in 2011. Um, and I'm I'm just thinking, although like he had to go to Miami to like beat Boston, like the fact that LeBron took the that took the Celtics to seven games, and I think it was the the 2010 playoffs, or maybe it was a, the 2009 playoffs. The fact that LeBron took them to seven, where Paul Pierce was prime Paul Pierce, slightly below prime Kevin Garnett, slightly below prime Ray Allen, still like those three, are, those three are all star caliber players. And then you have Ra- Rajon Rondo getting to like like almost peak Rondo. Like, I mean, we could make a whole other argument about is Jordan better in the situation than LeBron would have been, right? There's a million yeah. other things you could talk about based off of this and get into the GOAT conversation, which we're not going to do. But, but, but I but, think that that's yeah. a good point. The 2008-2009 Celtics that won the championship, I think, is probably the team that LeBron had to overcome. Yeah, and, because they, they just had so many weapons. It felt like like the Jordan doc painted it as like like LeBron – or they, it painted it as Jordan versus the world, like like Jordan versus like like all these knights on a hill – in in Detroit Pistons jerseys right and so for me watching that game seven back because NBA gives us free NBA stuff uh gives us free NBA clips it it reminded me of the exact same thing it it reminded me of LeBron and then a bunch of Knights on a Hill in Celtics jerseys and LeBron just had to blaze through all of them and basketball's five players so he didn't but he got he got damn close so that's my thought. I think probably the Celtics are the Pistons of LeBron's world. Nice. I agree. All right. So let's move on to another question. Um, further into probably episode three, not in episode four yet, because let's, uh, let's talk some about uh, Dennis Rodman. Um, that was very interesting. I didn't know anything about Dennis Rodman, just like personal life. I didn't know that he went out with, with Madonna. Maybe that's just me being like a teenager, but <laughs> I, I was vaguely aware. I didn't really understand. Uh, that's, that's one thing I'll, I'll ask you is, do you think there was one turning point? Cause it sort of listed a bunch. Do you think there was one turning point in, in Rodman's career or did he have to sort of keep correcting his path as he went along? Because you could argue it was Madonna. You could argue it was Phil Jackson. You could argue it was being traded to the Bulls. You could argue it was his vacation to Vegas. And there's a lot of different things you could argue just from this documentary alone. But. Okay, well, look, like, before the Bulls, Dennis Rodman was still a... A, like he was already in a good position in his career because he, he people considered people considered him a star. It was just a matter of, and it wasn't even a matter of contributing to winning basketball because he was on the Pistons too. It was just contributing to winning basketball in a bigger role and staying under control. Because the what happened is he kind of derailed himself towards the end of the Pistons days, and that's why they traded him, and then. I think he was off the rails. So I guess, I guess the, the turning point of his career is the turning point from where he turned from like a little bit off the rails back onto a winning track. So I I guess that's, that's being traded to the bulls 
because they, the, the documentary talked a lot about how the Bulls thought they could make that trade because they had such strong personalities and such a, and such a strong hierarchy. So I just think that that hierarchy was the perfect position because you have Jordan as the league dog, you have Pippen as a sidekick, and then you have everyone else. And if, Den- if Dennis Rodman is out here trying to challenge Jordan, like we all know how that's going to end. Like, like you just don't do that on a basketball team, mm. you know? So I think just, it's like military. It's like, it's like, like you, you are in a place and for a personality that goes all over the place, that type of order is good. At least in yeah. this case. Oh yeah. I, I think that's, I think it's a really interesting topic is like, where did Dennis Rodman go right? Because I think there were a lot of places where it seemed like he could go wrong. Um, uh, for example, like before he started dyeing his hair and things like that, he did not seem to be in a good place. He just wasn't happy, wasn't feeling the world of basketball in general. Um, when he got traded to the Spurs, wasn't happy. Um, and, and then there was the, the moment where he was sitting with a gun in his car and fell asleep. But like, there was a lot of moments that like looked very dangerous. I don't for, know if this is Rodman's true. Career. I don't know if this is true, but isn't there a story that Craig, that Craig Sager – like prevented him from like killing himself. I've never heard that. Um, there was an interesting clip I, of, of Craig Sager giving him 20 bucks and saying, yeah, this hobby with this fine. It's so a rest in peace, Craig Sager. Awesome yeah. dude. Um, but I never personally met him, but yeah. Friendly yeah. guy from, yeah. from TV. One thing that I want to talk about Rodman is I made a tweet on our social media last night. Follow us on Twitter at space the floor. And it was, it was after episode three, and I was saying, I, I saw on Twitter, who is the player that is most like Dennis Rodman today? I was, I was just thinking this. And t- did you see Ooh. what I tweeted? I did not, no. My answer is Kyrie Irving. And hmm. th- I'm not talking about on court. Hmm. I'm talking about off court. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, Dennis Rodman was wacky and, and Kyrie Irving's wacky and all that stuff. Like it's not an insult to Kyrie Irving. The reason I say that is because for me, they right now are the two biggest proponents from the nineties and for the, for the 2010s, they are the two biggest proponents of, Hey, I'm a do me and NBA players have their own problems off the court. We are, we are our own people off the court and, the NBA is a business. It's not life or death. You see that with Kyrie when he's ranting on social media. Uh, you see it when he's like, look, I'm trying to focus when I'm, I'm hearing all this trade rumors and I'm trying to get over my grandfather's death. Like you guys aren't talking about any of that. You're, you, don't, you just care about like this fishbowl of NBA. Meanwhile, Rodman does the same thing. He's like, look, man, I need a vacation. Look, man, I need to do stuff with my appearance to make myself feel happy regardless of like the on-court stuff. So that's my argument. I think that there's a very big similarity between those two in their behavior off-court. That would, that would not have jumped to mind, um, but I think that there's some truth in that Kyrie Irving, one playing with LeBron, was never once considered a locker room problem. And then as soon as he was his own man, when he was ahead of his own locker room, when he didn't have a Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen type personality to keep him in check. That's when you start seeing things that he's, you know, causing trouble. Like Rodman um, on the Spurs. Yeah. Here's a little bit of a stretch that I think is, is pretty interesting. 
I think that the Warriors made the trade for Andrew Wiggins, hoping they could be what Chicago was for Dennis Rodman in terms of, I, I think that Andrew Wiggins is all of the raw talent in the world. And he is not right now the player that Dennis Rodman was before joining the Chicago Bulls. But I think that the Warriors are hoping that with personalities like Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, they're going to be able to mold, sculpt Andrew Wiggins into a star that has it all figured out, that takes his raw ability and hones it into a really controlled player that is going to contribute to winning basketball. Um, and so it's a risky move. They're, they're rolling the dice, right? Um, but I think that it could be something that ends up paying off. So it's a little bit of a stretch, but that's one that comes to mind when hearing that question. Okay. I thought you were, when you said the Warriors, I thought you were just going to do the general cop out and be like, oh yeah, Dennis Rodman's Draymond Green. Yeah, that's not as interesting. Um, yeah, although there's, there's, that's, that's a fair question too. I, I, I always argue that Draymond Green would not be the player that he was had it not, had he been on any other team. Um, so I think that's true. That's, that's a fair argument, but I, I think it's almost a little bit too obvious because their games are a little bit similar as well. Yeah. A lot similar, a lot similar as well. Yeah. Um, uh, especially power forward on a dynasty, blah, 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 rough player, blah, blah, blah. Defense um, rebounding, all of it. Yeah. So I guess if, if you want to say like what mimics the situation, just from an on-court standpoint in terms of like filling roles, not necessarily play styles, but just filling roles and, taking chances. I, I think that's a pretty good contemporary translation. Draymond? I folk, I folk, uh, no, uh, Wiggins. Um, okay. Just yeah, like yeah. Make, making a move, betting on a guy with the structure that the Warriors have. Um, because the, the Warriors do have a very firm structure, right? Um, so I think that works. I went more for the sort of psychoanalysis um, activism. I, I, I like your analysis in that when Phil Jackson, we'll we'll get to Phil Jackson in a, in a minute, but when he described Dennis Rodman as a backwards walker, that that made that put a smile on my face, and I was like, "Dang!" Like Phil Jackson really gets Dennis Rodman in a way that I don't think anybody else did. What does um, a backwards walker mean? Well, it was it he it was like a Native American word, and it translates to backwards walker. Um, and, and I think that your Kyrie Irving comparison works and that I think that Kyrie Irving is a little bit of a backwards walker it's hard to analyze like Kyrie Irving is such a talented player but like why is it that people don't people argue about like how how does he like lead to winning basketball things like that he, he likes to talk about how the earth is flat I think Kyrie Irving is a little bit of a flat uh, a backwards walker um who else in the league is like that I'm not really sure but but he's definitely very one very few people I'm yeah well, yeah. Dennis Rodman might be the most backward of all the walkers <laughs> in NBA history. But, yeah, I, I think that Kyrie Irving makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, with that, I think we can move on to Phil Jackson. Definitely. That This was episode four, and they kind of detailed how Doug Collins was the original coach of the Bulls. And then there was a sudden feeling that I'm pretty sure Doug Collins or, or someone else was, was in an interview, and it's like, I could just feel that Phil Jackson was next in line. Um, mm. And then they were like, do you, do you want to go into de- details about that? It's like, no. I, I just Phil, that. <laughs> Doug Collins was salty. Like, uh, for whatever reason, maybe we can, we can talk about this. I think he kind of got done a little bit dirty 
but he was salty about about Phil Jackson like to this day. If we're talking about the, the really? Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas piece last thing, okay. I felt like Doug Collins was steaming like smoke coming out of his ears in that chair talking about Phil Jackson a little bit. Okay. I mean, honestly, I, I would be what too. I got. Because yeah. like you coach Jordan and then now Phil Jackson coach Jordan and he's the best coach of all time. Exactly. So that's that's what I was going to say is is – there's an argument to be made. I, I, I think that I think that felt I think that they made the right choice, hundred percent, without a shadow of a doubt, that it played out firing firing Doug Collins and, and promoting Phil Jackson worked. Right? Six championships later, it worked. But coming off of an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, and you have an incredible relationship with Michael Jordan, right? Where they're talking about kissing and like Michael Jordan says they were like this. <laughs> like if you're Doug Collins, it's like, well, where did I go wrong? It doesn't seem like he did anything wrong other than Jerry Krause liked the Tex Winter thing. I don't know. It's, it was his like weird beef with not letting Tex Winter sit on the bench with him that I think was eventually his downfall. Here's what I have to say about this, about mm. the, the passing of the guard. And the Eastern Conference Finals every time. They, they just kept losing to LeBron. They couldn't get over the hump. Just like the Bulls kept losing to the Pistons, they couldn't get over the hump. And then they fire, they fire, the, they fire Dwayne Casey, the Raptors coach, after they finally lose to LeBron again. I don't think it was in the – it wasn't in the Eastern Conference Finals, but it, it might as well have been because LeBron was the four seed that year. Um, and he was just – and the Raptors were the one seed. That and was the year he hit the he hit the game winner over OG, right? That was peak LeBronto. And so LeBronto and LeBron just LeBrontoed all over them. And so <laughs> and so they were like, All right, Dwayne Casey, you're fired. Like like people can After winning coach of the year, by the way. Yes, yes. I for, yeah, I forgot about that. He won coach of the year after leading them to the one seed. And he got fired. And if you ask people around the league, they were like, Dwayne Casey is a pretty good coach. Like I, I'm sure people would say Doug Collins is a pretty good coach, but then that next coach brings a different level of whatever Nick Nurse has, and then the Raptors go on to be the two seed and win the NBA Finals. So I, I just thought that that was a pretty good comparison for, for that passing of the guard. I think that also one of the most interesting things about Phil Jackson is that when he first shows up on the scene, Michael Jordan said, I didn't, I didn't like Phil because he was trying to take the ball, the ball out of my hands. And we know that he gets to the point where he says, I'm not going to play for any coach besides Phil Jackson. And so one of the things that I like the most about this documentary is hearing where we start and then where it ends up. So every episode, I'm excited to get one step closer to how we got there. And so I really think that it'll be it'll be interesting to see what made Phil Jackson so damn intriguing to Michael Jordan, right? Because yeah, obviously it, it something clicked, and maybe it was that John same John Paxson moment where Phil Jackson like triangle offense system all of a sudden worked out, right? And and it went from it was trying to take the ball out of Michael Jordan's hands to it was trying to make the team better, and it was like 
he started just reading what Phil Jackson was trying to do differently. And then that's when something clicked and it all turned around. They won championships and boom, here we are now. But, but I think that that's a really inter- that's going to be a really interesting story. I'm excited to hear more about that. Yeah. The, the best thing that I got out of that documentary in terms of like, wow, Phil Jackson is the GOAT coach is just him as a person. Because I think th- the most important thing besides that for, for his coaching legacy is he didn't invent the triangle. He didn't, no. he, yeah, he didn't, he didn't introduce the triangle. It, it was this guy, Tex Winter, that Jerry Krause hired. So on that list of achievements that we have, it's like, oh, yeah, Jerry Krause uh, drafted George, or I don't know if he drafted George, uh, drafted Piston, uh, drafted Pippen, traded for Rodman, traded for Bill Cartwright, did all this stuff. Tex and Winter he, and, and Phil and, Jackson. And Tex Winter was his first hire, was his first hire at this thing. And Tex Winter told Phil Jackson to run the triangle offense. Man. So, I, so uh, the, the question that I have, and, and I think this is where it gets really interesting, is, is Phil Jackson a great coach or is he a great people person that was just surrounded by the right assistant coaches? And I kind of think it might be the latter. Now, that is not anything against Phil Jackson. Mostly what I mean by that is I think it's an example of you don't have to be excellent at X's and O's to still be a great coach. And so I think that Phil Jackson, I mean, Phil Jackson, he, he, the most impressive thing to me is that he turned superstars and got them to play together. He made Dennis Rodman play with Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. He tamed the beast. He got them to be a dynasty together. He knew who was the right person to buddy up with. He got buddy up with Tex Winter and listened to him. He got buddy up with Jerry Krause, listened to him, and he worked his way up to the top. He instituted these things like the Native American culture in, in Buddhism and meditation and yoga and things like that more than he implemented systems that were brand new because Tex Winter, as we said, was the one who actually came up with the triangle offense. So I kind of think that Phil Jackson is one of the greatest ever at understanding NBA players, coaches, front offices, things like that, more so than he's great at understanding like what it takes to you know, like what's the right pass or what's the right shot. I think he understands what makes, I think he understands what makes a winning team or a winning locker room um, more so that he understands what is a winning play at the end of a game or something like that. And I agree with that. I will say that a lot of NBA coaching is just being people, people. Yeah. Uh, so um, that's, that's sort of my point is that he can be the greatest coach ever without knowing all that much about X's and O's. That's not to say he doesn't know that much about X's and O's, but we haven't seen proof of that to this point. Yeah, but look, like NBA players are so good that like the coaching role doesn't have to be great for you to win a championship. Like like they're like uh what whatever. Uh Doug Collins doesn't have to be a good coach for Jordan to hit a contested mid-range, right? Um and so but he does have to be a good coach for to to get all the players to try to buy into the system, right? And and that doesn't come from being that doesn't come from drawing good plays that comes from knowing your guys and knowing how to navigate people and phil jackson did that at an all-time level so i I do think you're right in that 
I think Phil Jackson won 11 championships because he was able to keep Kobe and Shaq together and because he was able to make Dennis Rodman uh, like love basketball. I don't even know how to say it, but he made Dennis Rodman, I think, understand who Dennis Rodman was um, as a person and as a basketball player. And that's why he became the player that he was. Um, so I just think Phil Jackson is something special because, because of the way that he got players to listen and respect him, um, regardless of what he did with a clipboard, with a whiteboard in his hands. Yeah. He seems like one of those guys that could be like successful at anything he does, like in business or, or like, except for as the next GM. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize, bro. <laughs> Yeah. So exactly. I, I maybe most, maybe he's not even that good at like basketball talent. Maybe that, he's just a people people. Part of so part of the reason <clears throat> that that I'm that I'm saying okay, Phil Jackson doesn't totally get the X's and O's, which I don't actually know. I I don't know what Phil, what happened in the Bulls behind the scenes, the assistant coaches and whatever. But all I know is that he didn't come up with a triangle offense, and then when he was given full control of an NBA organization and our Knicks, it went up in flames. And and so I kind of think. Uh, like Phil Jackson's great at talking to people, but like, don't let him decide what the Chris S. Porzingis trade is. Um, Which did, did he? He didn't do that, by the way. I don't think so. That's actually a good point. It yeah, wasn't. But, he wasn't the one who made the trade. He, he ruined he, the relationship with yeah, Chris S. Porzingis yeah, yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. place. Yeah. But okay, one last thing about Phil and and him being a people person is the thing that stood out to me is. Meanwhile, Doug Collins was like, here, Jordan, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. Phil Jackson not only was like, like made it more of like a motion offense or a triangle offense or whatever, but he had that moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is Phil, where he was like, Jordan, like, like, look at me, pass the ball, like, like pass the ball. And then, and then Paxton, like, like hit, hit the threes or whatever. But I think that was I think that was Phil Jackson because it was the series they beat the Pistons. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, and so yeah, it, it was just having enough confidence to be like, hey, look at me, star player, look at me, our entire franchise. Do what I say. Like like pass the ball. And it's it, like him passing the ball, it's it's the most obvious thing. So it's not like he needs to be a genius at basketball. It just he sees something. And he communicates it well. So th- that's, that's what I have to say on Phil Jackson. All-time communicator. Exactly. I, that's, you, you phrased that well. I, I, I want to I make one last point, which you don't even necessarily have to respond to. It's not really a question. It's just a thought off the top of my head. Is that Phil Jackson and Doug Collins really couldn't have been more different as coaches. Doug Collins was all about energy and in being a, in a full sweat after the game, right? He was drenched. Um, and, and it was everything was give Michael Jordan the ball and get the hell out of the way. Whereas Phil Jackson was the king of chill, the king of Zen. Native American and, and Buddhist culture that I don't fully understand, but that is very heavily right on like reflection and like being at peace and in, in like taking time to relax and like free your mind basically. Um, it, so, and then also with the triangle offense and getting everybody involved. So they just had two totally different approaches. And so it was a drastic change with the greatest player of all time on the roster right after they were, they were in the Eastern Conference Finals. So 
once again, a round of applause for Jerry Krauss for pulling the trigger on that because that was a huge turn of events that probably changed this, the course of NBA history. Um, and it was kind of a 180 uh, just for the, for the coaching position. Yeah, I agree. Um, shout out to the Bad Boy Pistons. Shout out to Dennis Rodman. Shout out to Phil Jackson. Uh, this is a really fun episode. We'll be back again for episodes five and six next week. I'm really excited. I don't know what's Looking to come forward next. to for sure. Yeah, I don't know what's going to come next, but but we'll we'll find out. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Space to the Floor NBA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. If if you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. We really appreciate it. Follow us on Instagram at Space to the Floor Podcast and on Twitter at Space to the Floor. And thank you so much for watching. My name is Connor Gillen. And I'm Connor Flannery. And see you next time. Peace. Shout out to Carmen Electra.